My name is Caleb Kubray, and this is Nightbeat. Tonight, a coronavirus update from a WRSU alumni in Seattle, the NJ Department of Health Disease Service Medical Director, the President of Rutgers AAUP AFT, and a touching tribute to a WRSU alumni. That's all coming your way, so here is your host, Joey Block. Welcome to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Caleb Kubray is with me now. He'll be joining us shortly in a moment, but first... I want to break down the latest news happening with the coronavirus outbreak here at Rutgers and around the world. There's a lot of big news stories here at Rutgers, for sure, and we're going to be getting to all of them. But first, let's get to the current count. The current count is over 3.6 million cases across the globe. More than 1.6 million cases right here in the U.S. and over 60,000 deaths. More than 116,000 coronavirus infections in New Jersey, with over 6,700 fatalities, as well as more than 1,100 cases here in New Brunswick. The effect of the coronavirus has taken shape on our own campus. It was announced late last week that Rutgers is making significant budget cuts as a result of revenue that is a loss of revenue that is expected from the fall semester and a tuition freeze on top of everything else by the university. President Abarchi made the announcement via email and said this could possibly lead to layoffs of university employees. The Rutgers AAUPAFT did not take kindly to that. The university is also in hot water as many faculty are accusing Barchi of not supplying them with PPE while performing clinical work. This led to a car caravan protest in front of Barchi's home on Saturday. WRSU News reporter Chris Sakonis will be bringing us the latest on the faculty's perspective with Rutgers AAUPAFT President Todd Wolfson. He should, we should note, we invited someone from the university to come on, but they were not able to. We are still waiting for a request for comment from the university regarding the protest. The crisis has hit pretty hard, pretty home, pretty far home for us here at WRSU, as it has taken one of our own. A WRSU alum has passed away due to complications with COVID-19. We'll have more on that later in the hour. On a positive note, Virtual Rutgers Day went off without a hitch this weekend. We are so blessed to be part, to be have had the opportunity to be part of Rutgers Day. And by running a virtual concert with performances by Latchkey Kids, Kovatova, and Rugburn, and we interviewed all of the bands afterwards. We would like to thank the Rutgers Day organizers for letting us participate and hope to be back at Bishop Beach for our annual Rutgers Day concert next year. Besides Rutgers Day, the university is also getting some statewide exposure from the governor. Yesterday, Governor Murphy announced incoming president of Rutgers, Jonathan Holloway, will be a part of his reopening committee. Holloway will be taking office in July. New Brunswick is getting a testing site of its own. Tomorrow, one will be opening for Middlesex County residents only. The site will be at Redshaw Elementary School and will be using the new saliva test created by Rutgers. This and the Kilmer site are still the ones, the only ones in the entire country, using that test. Today at the White House, Dr. Anthony Fauci announced he has hope 
for the antiviral drug Resevier to help relieve symptoms of COVID-19. There have been some arguments by media and other infectious disease experts that it doesn't make too much of a difference, but the clinical trials that Fauci saw made him have quite high optimism for the drug. At a press conference today, Governor Murphy announced a couple of executive orders. One is dealing with the opening of golf courses and parks around the state. The governor said the count the counties have full discretion to to mandate them on their own. However, he is saying for the upcoming weekend that he feels it is appropriate to reopen them. However, the governor did stress that if he did see all people not following social distancing guidelines, that he would reverse the order and he would close the parks. The second order has mandated that the that you will be allowed to use uh, court, you'll be allowed to do petitioning for elections virtually. And he stressed that he did not want people going door to door during this time of social distancing. So that is one by the governor there that he wanted to stress. We'll be talking about this and more throughout the hour. But first, we will have to get to an interview. And this is kind of a special one for us. For us now, a lot of alumni, they go off to do big things. Well, for one, she's a morning show host in Seattle. Now, for many of you who have probably been listening to the show and just have been following media altogether, Washington has been, was the first thing. This is where it supposedly all started, according to reports, the first death in the United States. And now it's kind of interesting to check in and see where we are with that. So, joining me now, live, I the phone, from Seattle, is Carla Marie. Carla Marie, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Hi, Joey. Hi, Carla Marie. Thank you so much for putting up with the uh, technical difficulties and for joining me, and I really appreciate it. No, listen, if anyone gets it, it's me. And also, I feel like I taught you something there by accident. You learned how to fill. Isn't that fun? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I guess if I'm going to get anywhere close to where you are right now, um, I'll definitely need to do that. Yeah, um, So I want to start by asking you, basically, how are you doing out there? Uh, well, good. I would say all things considering. I mean, obviously, it, it hit here first, um, which was scary because we didn't have a playbook. We didn't have anyone else to look to in this country to see how it all happened. Um, and our governor, Governor Jay Inslee, really took action very fast. And I commend him for how he did this. Um, I think it was my birthday was March 5th. And that was the day that Amazon shut down. And Amazon runs this city. So when Amazon offices shut down, that's when we knew it, it was real. And at that point, my family in New Jersey was still just going about their normal lives. And I was yelling at them. And they weren't getting it. And now it's just crazy to see where we all are in all of this. Yeah, so you mentioned the fact that Seattle was um, very a hot spot in Washington mm-hmm. State as a whole. Seattle is widely recognized as the nation's first epicenter. Since you're currently located in Seattle, I mean, what was the first notable sign that something was unusual happening? Um, I mean, as a result. So we want run traffic reports every day on our station. And it's normally your commute is going to be 
two hours. And, and that's, you know, on, if you were driving in the middle of the night, it would be 40 minutes. So when you would hear, you know, the two hours every day for four years here being on the air, and then one day it was, Hey, you're going to get there in 40 minutes. We were like, this is not okay. You know, the roads were empty. It was the weirdest thing. I mean, we have one of the worst commuting cities in America and for it to just be no traffic was scary and just going downtown and seeing no one around it was it was eerie and that's when you knew and I mean it happened very quickly that that first week when Amazon like I said when they shut down I mean everyone works at Amazon so it was tough yes yeah, so also uh, we want to talk about how you are affected personally now mm -hmm. normally in media you know it's like you don't stop the show must go on however for you I know in a lot of media places like CNN, local radio stations around here, they're all having to move home. I mean, since then, you're doing virtual shows now. I mean, what's that like? Yeah. And how How is it for you? It's pretty crazy because, I mean, when I was at RSU, never in my life did I think I'd be in radio and working from home. You don't think of it like that. How How is that possible? You don't work from home when you host a morning show, but you don't have a choice right now. So originally we were trying really hard to just stay in the studio as much as we could. And then I got sick. I ended up not having the coronavirus, but I got sick. So we had to move me out of the studio just in case. And we figured out how to do it from all of our homes. So three of us are in different locations in our homes. And then my co-host Anthony is actually still in the studio alone. So we are using um, video chat, Microsoft Teams, and just connecting into him every day and he's on video chat through our studio board so it's there's a lot of moving parts there's no simple like plug and play there's a lot that has to go into it and the audio is not the you know the best quality in the world but it isn't for anything that we're watching or consuming right now so we're kind of on par with everyone else and you just kind of i got studio uh soundproofing now in my spare bedroom on my walls just trying to make it sound the best that it can so in terms of engaging listeners, since that's a very part, big part of radio yeah. now, how has that changed for you? I mean, is, have you obviously it's not the same as, you know, being in the studio, doing calls as well as doing street hits. I mean, what what's that like? Yeah, it was it definitely scary at first. I mean, our phone lines are a lifeline and people are calling them all day, all show. And when they're not in their cars, having all this free time and traffic, guess what they're not doing? Calling their local radio station. So very quickly we pivoted, not that we don't always do this, but social media has been a huge, huge help for us. Um, and just connecting with people all day and checking in with them. And if they say that they love the show and they love to listen, well, we remind them, you can listen at home on your iHeartRadio app, your Amazon Alexa, your Google Home, and connecting that way and then actually getting them prepping them to say, all right, call in at this time. We want to talk to you about this tomorrow to really make that direct connection. And we've also actually been getting some listeners on via Zoom doing some video chats with them, which is something we never would have done before, never in our lives would we have thought, oh, well, it's video chat with a radio listener. But it's been really cool to do that. And we've also been using Twitch to stream our show. So taking the video chat of what we see and streaming it. And then we have a lot of interaction in there via the Twitch chat room. So there are still people listening. They're just listening in different ways. And you in radio, whatever medium you're in, you have to adjust to what everyone else is doing. And also, I want to touch upon the fact that you are in Seattle, and mm -hmm. Seattle is very compact. Everything's everyone's on top of another 
one another. I mean, what is it like to the fact that there's a stay-at-home order, you can't go anywhere, and you're stuck in your home? Yeah, it is tough. I mean, we are very compact, but we're not New York City. So there's, you know, there's that. I mean, I live in a city, and I have parks, and I have there's houses around. So it is very different than New York. We don't have public transportation. We don't have subways. So we don't have that kind of packedness that you have in New York but Seattle it's kind of different on here because there's a thing called the Seattle freeze that I learned about when I moved here and it's kind of this thing where everyone in the city and in the whole area likes to just kind of be home and be uh, away from everyone else and not talk to anyone else and do their own thing and go on their hikes alone so we were kind of built for this which is very interesting but very early on, people were following the orders. I mean, I would go on a walk and you'd see someone and one of us would cross the street. So it's not like New York City where the streets are packed with people all the time and you feel trapped inside. I see my neighbors walking all the time, all day, every day. There are people back and forth going on walks and they're just staying away from one another. So we do have that advantage of, yes, we're a city, but we aren't packed like New York City or even New Jersey. It, it is very different. But here... I'd say everyone is a rule follower and we were very quick to listen to our governor and just get home and adjust to our new normal for now. Also very important. I want to ask you about is that you mentioned that people tend to be social distancing, at least your neighbors anyway. I've been noticing, actually I was even having this conversation with my mom this afternoon. They were just sitting now watching since I live in, you know, suburbia in New Jersey, yeah. where it, it's fairly easy. However, there were kids out there on their bikes. You could tell that they were not related talking to one another, yeah. like not social distancing. Is that is there some cases of that that you're seeing in Seattle? Oh, for sure. I, you know, you're seeing it all the time. And I'd say, I'd say it generally is more with little kids. I mean, it is really hard to parent right now. I am very grateful that I am not parenting in this situation, but I did see um, adults across the street from my house the other day. I guess they went on some bike ride and they were all talking and they were so close to one another. And I was in my house like, what are you doing? What, like, hello. And I wanted to yell out my window like you're not social distancing. But I mean, you are going to find those people. But if they are staying in small groups, I mean, I know a lot of um, governors keep saying 10 or 10 people or less, I mean, then what are you going to do in that situation? If they were throwing a block party, that's another thing. But if it's 10 people or less, from what I have been hearing, I think you're safe. I mean, we all, we can't just live in a bubble forever. We are going to have to go to the grocery store and be around people. So it's not the end of the world when you see, you know, two people having a conversation. You just hope that they are practicing safe social distancing and every other aspect and being at home and not being in crowds and that they aren't healthcare workers. You, since you mentioned the fact that you kind of can't live in a bubble, per se, mm-hmm. are there any efforts to currently open the city of Seattle back up? So our um, stay-at-home order was supposed to end on May 4th. That has been the rule for more than a month now. And we just got alert tonight that it is not ending May 4th and that we have no end date at this point. However, next week, our parks and same as you guys, our golf is opening, some parks, some golf, some, you know, there are restrictions still. It's not just a free-for-all. Some hikes that can be monitored so that it's not 
jam-packed and bottlenecking at the trailhead. So we are getting some opening. I think it's personally crazy to me that New Jersey is opening this weekend before we are here in Seattle. And I still think you guys are in way worse shape than we are at this point. So that is mind-boggling to me. Yeah, I want to ask you about opening since the governor of Georgia opened up almost entirely this past (laughs) week. I mean, restaurants, movie theaters, tattoo parlors, and their cases, they're going up. I mean, what do you make of that? I I mean, the numbers are right there. I mean, anyone could have told you. I'm not a healthcare worker. I am not a government official. I will never be a government official. I host a top 40 radio morning show. And last week, I could have told you, that's a dumb move. You're going to lose your people. They're going to be sick and they're going to die because you're making a dumb decision. And it's happening. I mean, it's just, it's idiocy. And I mean, I'm not the only person saying that. (laughs) It's clear that, you know, yeah, hair salons, some of my best friends own hair salons and I want them to have their livelihood and be able to do what they do, of course. But do I want them to get sick? Do I want their customers getting sick and saying, hey, I, I got sick at this hair salon? No. Do I think it's essential? No, I would love to get my hair done right now, but I can't. And I know it's not safe for me to do that. Are tattoos essential? Most definitely not. And I think for some reason, I don't know why, clearly, as from what we've seen, Georgia's the only state doing this, and I hope no other state follows suit, but it's clearly not the smart thing to do. I also want to talk more personally as this regards to you. Uh, This past week, you put out on Facebook that you are postponing your wedding to next March. Uh, (laughs) Not my wedding, my sister's wedding. (laughs) Ah, uh, sister's wedding. Apologies yes. for that. Um, uh, so what has that been like for you, for yeah, your family that you're having to put off that? It's been crazy. I Very early on, my, my sister was like, there's no way. It's not going to have to happen. And I'm the maid of honor, so I'm very involved in a lot of the planning. And I didn't want to push her. I was like, well, she's going to have to make the decision on her own. Like, it's going to happen anyway. I don't need to tell her so early on that she's going to have to move it. But um, the bridal shower was actually scheduled for May 15th, 17th. Sorry. I was supposed to be flying to New Jersey two weeks from tomorrow for this. And I made the call very early on that we're not doing this. We're not having our family. We're not having elderly people in our family in one place just to celebrate a wedding where we could also get them sick and, and lose them. And we don't, it's not worth it at that point. So I think what my sister finally decided is I want to have the wedding, the bachelorette party, the bridal shower that I want to have and not be stressed that it's going to cause harm to anyone that I love or that it may not happen. So let's just bump it all. So she just moved it all from, it was this August was the wedding. She moved it to next March and we're hoping obviously that will be okay. And there will be no restrictions on event size because she's having a huge wedding so it's kind of crazy there are a lot of phone calls you have to make but at the end of the day so what you're making phone calls you're doing menial tasks you're saving lives while doing it here's a hypothetical for you since you were a i know you're sounding so excited about that (laughs) so you were a former wrsu news director yeah now in this time when news is just going all over the place if you were in my role what would you be doing to cover the story? Who would you be talking to? I mean, it's, since this is such an unusual time yeah. in journalism. It is bizarre. And I think we are all kind of learning as we go right now. We're kind of writing that playbook for 
the next wave of journalists, which is kind of crazy to think of when, you know, you look at it like that, like we're a part of history right now. Um, I think what you are doing right now is very smart. You are talking to different people, different aspects. I mean, you're talking to me. I haven't, I don't think I've been back on Nightbeat in 10 years since I left. So it's smart to do that. You have the ability with the Rutgers alumni. I mean, we're everywhere. You have this ability to reach out to people in every single state. And I think what you're doing is great, but you just talked about Georgia. We definitely have Rutgers alumni in Georgia, and maybe you should try to find someone from there and reach out to see how they feel about their state opening. And they don't have to be an RSU alum. They could just be a Rutgers alum. I'm sure they would love, love, love to talk to you. So I think you have to kind of step outside the box and think, okay, what is something we would never normally do? You know, you normally cover your regular news on a regular night. Well, what is something we would never normally do? Because guess what's happening right now? Something you would never normally think would happen. So you have to really step outside the box. But I think you're doing great. I think um, personally, what we do on our show pretty often is try to um, throw in some positive news. I mean, we are pretty positive. We are entertainment top 40, but try to show in and showcase those the little heroes in the local neighborhoods. I know New Brunswick's got a ton of people. I know the university has a ton of people. You were talking about having Rutgers Day this weekend. That's amazing that you guys are doing that. So try to show the fact that there really are good people in this world. Yeah, there are people dying. That is awful. Don't get me wrong. But there are still heroes rising in this. And it may be, you know, just a small, quick little story. But if you can give people that feel-good moment, you're going to make them smile and you're going to make them want to come back for more. So I got one more question for you before we wrap up here. So how would you say or should – when would you think is the perfect time – well, not the perfect, but in your mind, when do you think it's appropriate to open things back up? Since, I mean, whether it's Seattle, whether it's nationwide, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, first and foremost, I'm not a government official. I'm not a healthcare worker. I I know nothing about – medical at all. So I can't, I can't make that obviously make that call with the proper knowledge, but I do think you need to get past the point we needed to get to. Meaning if we say we need to be at a point where the curve is flat, where it's flattened to X point, well, we need to get actually past X point where, when we open it, let's kind of just go a little further to make sure that we don't open. And in two weeks, we're all back home again, because guess what? That's not going to be good. If you make everyone sit home, maybe an extra week, they'll be fine. But if you tell everyone they get outside, actually, you got to get back inside and do this again. It's not going to go well. No one's going to be happy and it's not, it's going to suck. So if we can just go a little longer than we think we're supposed to, I think that's smart. And I love the idea of every state being on the same page. I know that keeps being thrown around. Every state should open at once, but honestly, we're all different. You know, we're all in the same country, but every state is completely different. And Washington, we've got ton of farms and so does New Jersey, but Washington is a huge state. So we've got a lot of rural area, whereas New York and New Jersey don't. So in our in that sense, I think that Washington will most likely open before New York and New Jersey, and that makes sense. Now, is that going to make you know New York and Jersey be like, well, that's not fair. Our little sister gets to go hang out, and we don't. Yeah, but it'll help get the economy going faster, and and will be proof that look, it is better. And if you just sit home and wait until you need to. Morning show host at Kiss One Hundred Six. Point one Seattle and former WRC News Director Carla Marie. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. 
You're welcome, Joey. Good luck with everything. And, uh, you know, news director is a fun job. I, I had it at some point. So it's cool talking to you and hearing you have that and hearing Caleb coming up next. I'm excited for you guys. So good luck. Proud of you and proud of you guys for holding down WRSU. Thank you. Let's see if we can get Caleb Kuberite on with us as well. First of all, thank you so much for co-hosting with me tonight. Um, so I want to start off with just the basic news of the day here. The governor pretty much signing executive orders um, dealing with parks and golf courses. I mean, what what do you think of this? Do you think this is a safe thing or do you think people are just going to disobey this altogether? I mean, I definitely think it's exciting. I think it's uh, exciting just because we see that the curve is starting to plateau and we're having the opportunity to start opening things again. Um, we just have to make sure that we're doing it at the right pace. Uh, we need to make sure that people are still um, wearing PPE. People are still practicing um, appropriate social distancing guidelines. So to open state parks and golf courses where generally I don't think um, too many people are that close, I think it's a pretty good start. We just have to make sure that any kind of move doesn't see a spike in uh, coronavirus cases. And if we see that spike, of course, we got to follow the data and make sure that these measures are either rescinded or ended. Um, because at the end of the day, um, you know, just by following the guidelines and getting tested, if we believe we're sick, that's what's going to stop this entire pandemic and allow us to go outside again. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so while we're waiting for Carla Marie, um, I want to ask you, let, let's get a little bit into what's going on in Washington State currently. So according to the Seattle Times, Washington State had the confirmed, first confirmed case of the coronavirus in the United States, as I previously stated. Plus, Seattle is widely recognized as the nation's first epicenter. Since you are, Since she was currently located in that effect, I mean... What do you think she has to bring to the table there? Well, I mean, I think it's a really exciting interview that we have in store. Uh, Carla Marie is someone who is in Seattle. She works for the KISS 106.1 morning show. And she's right there, I think, at the very start of this entire pandemic in the United States. Um, Seattle, uh, like you said, was recognized as one of the first epicenters in the country. And it was one of the places I remember way back, I believe, in January and February that people were looking at seeing if this thing was going to spread um, to New York City, to Chicago, L.A., and all kinds of other major cities. So Carla Marie definitely probably has firsthand experience of what happens in Seattle, uh, how they implemented different policies and procedures. And it's pretty amazing that Seattle, I believe, only has... Um, a little more than 10,000 cases while uh, New York City is still, I think, the one of the most infected places in the world with over, th with over 300,000 cases. So Carla Marie, like I said, is someone who's going to have some really valuable experience. And we're going to see what happened in Seattle when this pandemic was first starting to blow up in the country. Yes, that's for sure. So I want to get your reaction to... What's going? What Dr. Fauci said at the White House today. Uh, so he pretty much said that a second round of coronavirus is unavoidable. The the quote is: If by that time we have put into place all of the countermeasures that you need to address this, we 
should do reasonably well. If we don't do that successfully, we should be in for a bad fall and winter. What uh, type of countermeasures still need to be put in place, Caleb? So some of the countermeasures that Fauci is talking about are some of the things that I think we've been hearing in the news for a while. Um, those are testing. I think the United States is still lagging behind when it comes to testing with places like Italy and Spain. Um, the I believe second and uh, second being Italy and the third being Spain um, still having more tests done than the United States at the moment. And also things like contact tracing all over the world. Uh, different countries are using contact tracing to um, track who's been infected with the coronavirus and making sure that whoever has come into contact with those people um, know that they've come into contact potentially with coronavirus. Uh, besides testing and contact tracing, of course, we are still looking at different treatments. Um, I know you mentioned in your intro a new type of treatment that um, is being developed and I believe was quite successful in clinical trials and even tests that were developed right here at Rutgers. Rutgers developing the first saliva test for coronavirus. So all these countermeasures need to be put in place. Um, so hopefully, you know, Rutgers students can go back to school in the fall, which is something that could possibly um, not not happen. No, uh, we're still yet to see if universities are going to be opening in the fall 2020 semester. Yeah, so I want to get a little more into that here. So... The, the university's already pretty much gearing up for this as they're making budget cuts. They're doing tuition freezes so students can still afford to go there. Um, the chancellor of the New Brunswick campus, Chancellor Christopher Malloy, he put an op-ed in NJ.com uh, about a week or so ago. And pretty much he was saying maybe a good idea to stay local. Uh, so I guess my question to you more is how will the coronavirus affect the 2020-21 school year? And is it going to change people's plans? Yeah, well, to start with um, Chancellor Malloy's op-ed that was that was on NJ.com, um, although I think he clearly has a conflict of interest telling people to go to Rutgers as the chancellor, he does make a very valid point. You know, during a time when there is an infectious virus, it is, I think, a safer bet to be closer to home um, so that, you know, in case of an emergency, it, it could be taken care of, but also to make sure that people aren't traveling as much, which I think is much more important. Um, so Chancellor Moy definitely makes a good point, although you can kind of see a little bit of a conflict there. And when it comes to the 2020-2021 school year, uh, it is still yet to be seen what will happen with some universities. Um, I've definitely heard that Rutgers is ramping up online classes and some large maybe intro or basic classes could possibly be online. Um, but it's it's really interesting to see just how uh, the year is going to turn out because we have to see how the coronavirus turns out. And then from there, um, we'll see what happens. And I think the one thing to keep in mind is that Rutgers will not be the first to close down, but rather places in hotspots like New York, such as a school like NYU, and even places in L.A., maybe UCLA, I think those universities will probably be making moves before Rutgers does. Yeah, that's something we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on for sure. Um, coming up, there's going to be a lot more night beat. We're going to be talking to the Department of Health uh, Medical Director and as well as the Faculty Union President. That's happening here right here on WRSU-FM New Brunswick. 
Open calendar. What's my schedule looking like? Next Thursday, you will be caught in an emergency flash flood between Park and First Street. What? No, no, that doesn't work. I'm, I'm busy then. Decline. De decline. Floods don't exactly work around your schedule. Disasters don't plan ahead, but you can. It starts with talking to your loved ones about making an emergency plan. So don't wait. Communicate. Get started today at ready.gov slash plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Hey, give me a beat. If you're looking for music that's, well, just off the beaten path, you should tune into The Offbeat. It's alternative, electric, and just playing out their songs unfit for most ears. But I'll make an exception for you. Slow my descent into madness and tune into The Offbeat. Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Only on WRSU FM New Brunswick. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. With remdesivir being announced as a possible treatment for coronavirus, I talked to Medical Director of Disease Services at the New Jersey Department of Health, Dr. Edward Lipschitz, about other possible treatments, testing in New Jersey, and reopening the state. Here's a listen. So testing has been something your department uh, has been trying to ramp up. What efforts has your team been making in order to make this happen? Well, well, certainly we understand that testing needs to be increased across the state as well as across the nation, and there have been many issues related to that from the beginning. It's also important to, to note that the Department of Health is not responsible for testing. I mean, we don't have any independent or almost no independent testing capacity of our own. We're dependent upon uh, all these other centers, all these other big laboratories to come in and provide testing in places like LabCorp, Quest, those sorts of places. So what the department has been able to do is in some places, for example, the two mass testing centers, which are run by the department with help from the federal government, or two big IT centers, one in Bergen and one in Monmouth, were able to do that uh, in it would not be possible for us to do that throughout the state. We've extended assistance to counties and other places as they try to set up their own testing centers as well as help to provide supplies when we have it. But the Department of Health can't be the solution to the issue of not having enough testing. Yeah, so there's been many developments in testing, including the saliva test made by Rutgers. Currently, it's only being used at the Kilmer DMV site in Edison and will be used at the Redshaw Elementary School site here in New Brunswick when it opens tomorrow. Are there any plans based on the department's knowledge of further expanding the use of this test to other sites? Yes, the Rutgers saliva test is certainly one of the exciting tests that are out there as far as testing for the virus itself. You mentioned a couple of sites where it's being used. I didn't hear you say the Middlesex County testing site. I believe they're used there as well. Uh, in addition, I do know that there are discussions underway where that particular test might be used in other large testing situations. For example, when you're looking to test a large population of people in developmentally disabled housing situations, those sorts of places. Getting the test to state residents has been a reoccurring issue 
Are there any efforts being made to create a self-administered test where those who think they may have coronavirus could test themselves? Well, what you're really asking is two slightly separate questions. There is now, just recently within the last week, an approved test that can be done at home, meaning that the uh, resident can take a swab, stick it up their nose, and then package it and bring it to a lab, which processed out in a, in a separate lab. So that capability, although small, currently exists. The ideal test, of course, would be more like a home pregnancy test, something like that. You could just do it yourself, run it right at home, get a result in 10 minutes, and know right away what's happening with you. And unfortunately, I don't see that happening anytime in the very near future. So a lot of treatments are being looked at, possibly for the virus, including hydroxychloroquine, antibody testing, and using plasma. Is there any method that sticks out to you compared to the rest of them? As you mentioned, uh, certainly there's an awful lot of interest and awful lot of research that are going into trying to come up with a cure, or really not a cure, just a treatment for this disease. It is really very early to tell as far as any of that goes. Certainly it is likely that something will be found that will make some difference. I do want to tamp down some of the expectation that there's going to be a miracle drug out there, that there'll be a miracle drug out there. You know, these are all medicines that will help. I don't think it's likely that you may get to the point where you just go take a medicine and everything will go away in a day or two and you'll be back to normal. I know it's not quite that, but is there anything that could be used maybe in hospitals or something to where people who have very severe symptoms uh, could be using this to at least remedy the problem over a course of maybe several days or weeks? Absolutely. And, and you mentioned three of the ones that have been getting the most publicity. One is the hydroxychloroquine, uh, for which studies are ongoing and you hear somewhat mixed reviews on. The other are the plasma-derived antibody treatments, and basically that's taking antibodies from people who have already had the disease and infusing it into somebody who has the disease hoping that that antibody will go ahead and attack the virus right away. And the third is an investigational drug called remdesivir, which just today they published some studies that suggested it might have an effect as well. In addition to those three drugs, as I said, there are literally probably 50 others that are out there. Now, these have some of the benefit that hydroxychloroquine is already an approved medication, and it's been around for a long time, so it would be easy to get and use. And Desivir has been in trials going back to Ebola. It was originally designed to try to treat Ebola. And if that's effective, you can ramp up production relatively quickly. Uh, the plasma-derived antibodies, somewhat slower, but you have a, the, unfortunately, you have a lot of people who have the disease and making the antibodies from which you can find a lot of these things. And then there are other drugs out there that, that are very early in the investigation stage where people are essentially designing drugs to try to yeah, so you talked about a lot of those treatments there. Right now, currently in the hospitals in New Jersey hospitals like Robert Wood Johnson, Hackensack Meridian Health Center, um, are there any treatments ways like what are they doing in order to relieve symptoms of patients right now? Again, two slightly separate questions. One is what do you do to you know the standard treatment for COVID is what's known as 
symptomatic or supportive, meaning that you do things to make people feel better and to support them until they can recover themselves. And that includes everything from oxygen treatments to ventilators when they're very sick, you know, to simple things like Tylenol and so forth to position them as how they fly on beds. In addition to those supportive things, hospitals certainly are trying to figure out ways to use specific medicines to treat the underlying problem. You know, some of the ones we've already mentioned here. And a lot of those hospitals that you've mentioned are involved both in clinical trials, which is the right way to try to do this, where you, you, know, you bring patients in and in a controlled setting, you, you try different things and basically you see what's going to work because you don't know. And other hospitals as well, as well because some of those medicines, only hydroxychloroquine you can already get, they just have standard protocols where they will try that because it's basically, well, we're not sure if it will work or not, but we don't have anything else to do. Let's give it a shot. Going back to some another treatment method that we were talking about earlier, I know the state has been doing a lot with antibody tests. According to the World Health Organization, there's no evidence to support that COVID-19 patients can't get it again. Based on your expertise, is this something you agree with? What people hope is that you can do an antibody test. And again, antibodies are what your body develops in response to an infection. So unlike the other tests we're talking about before, like the Rutgers virus test that looks for the virus itself, the antibodies is your body's response to that infection. And what often happens is you become infected with something, your body develops these antibodies, and these antibodies then give you immunity to that infection going forward. That immunity can be absolute, meaning you likely never get that disease again. For example, measles tends to be pretty close to absolute. Or it can be relatively short-lived, meaning it might only protect you for three months or six months or for two years or five years, and it may not fully protect you, but you may just not get it as seriously. At this point, essentially what the World Health Organization is saying, well, we don't know. Uh, we don't know what the body's antibody response, the body is clearly making antibodies to this infection. We don't know what that will mean. We don't know how good the protection will be. We don't know how long it will last, and basically we're going to have to wait to see. When you talk about antibody testing, well, again, the goal and the ideal and what people think that they're getting is they think that they're getting a way that they can see whether they've had a disease and, more importantly, whether they've had a disease is whether they are now immune and they don't have to worry about getting in the future. It would be very nice to get a blood test, uh, very quick and easy, that comes back and says, oh, you're immune, you've had it, you don't have to worry about it, then you can go about your normal life and not worry about protecting others or yourself being infected. The problem is, we're not there yet, and we're not there for two reasons, one of which we already talked about, which is that even if I know that you have antibodies to COVID, I don't know for sure what that means. I'm hoping that that mean that you're immune, but I don't know. I don't know what level uh, people become immune. I don't know how long that immunity will last for those sorts of issues. The other issue, which is equally important, is I have to read that test in the first place. If the test comes back that tells me that you have antibodies to COVID, I have to believe that the test is accurate and you actually have antibodies to COVID. And there are issues around that. There are other similar viruses that circulate, other coronaviruses, for example, in New Jersey that circulate. And it is possible that antibody testing can be confused, meaning it can tell you that you had COVID when really you had one of these other coronaviruses. And sometimes the tests are just wrong. I mean, antibody tests can come back positive even if you've never been exposed. So it's for all those reasons that the World Health Organization and the New Jersey Department of Health it's certainly very cautious about recommending uh, doing antibody testing for individuals. At this point, we don't think it gives the individual enough information to 
CEO and make any decisions about how I should act or could act or are likely to be immune. We do think it is a better tool for understanding what's happening in the population as a whole, meaning if I test a whole lot of people out there just to get a sense of how many people might have been infected, I'm not concerned about any one of them when it might be a false positive, and I'm not concerned about whether it really means that they're immune, but it could give me a better sense of how many people out there actually have this disease. Yeah, you mentioned herd immunity. I want to talk a little more about that because there have been reports coming out now that there are actually deaths in California that happened weeks before the first report death in Washington. And there have been people saying that this virus has been around as early as November and December of last year. How many people do you think in New Jersey could have it that were just asymptomatic and we have no idea who they are, who if they've been tested, as well as just who may have had it and just didn't get tested? We have absolutely no doubt that when you see the case counts that are posted every day, that there are significant undercounts, that there are very many people in New Jersey and the rest of the country who either never had symptoms or had mild symptoms or particularly earlier, although even now to some extent, just were not able to get to some place and get tested who had the disease. And that's why we go ahead and we do these things like the pregnant studies to get a better idea as to what was really happening in the overall population. As far as when it first began circulating in the United States, it's impossible to say absolutely for sure. And it was first officially reported in China in December. I am sure that it was circulating unknown to some extent in the community before it was seen. It could not have been circulating widespread in the community before we knew about it. Meaning, if you ask me, could this have started in September, let's say, in the United States? And the answer would be no, because that would have been picked up just from without testing, just from more people going to the hospital, more people dying with these pneumonias, and, and so forth. So, as to the exact week it started, don't know, couldn't predict, but you know, it certainly started in the winter of 2019-20. So in regards to the numbers of cases in the state, it's the second most in the nation, only behind New York. Despite that, the governor today announced that he's going to be reopening golf courses and parks effective at sunrise on Saturday. With this all in mind, is this the appropriate time to open up such places? You're always doing a balancing act between trying to do the most good and the least harm at the same time. As from a pure public health perspective, if all we were worrying about doing was stopping the spread of this virus, you know, the ideal action would be to make sure everybody that's suffering by at least six feet for at least two weeks, didn't share food or anything like that, and, and you could really cut down how the virus was transmitted in New Jersey. From a practical standpoint, of course, that's just not possible. People have to live, they have to have everything going along. And this is a, a similar situation. So the question is there's the potential risk, and there is some risk by opening up parks. People may come closer together and so forth. Is that worth the benefit to the general public health to be able to the mental health and physical health or go out and enjoy and do these things outside? And certainly I would support the reopening at this point because whatever risk there is in those situations, we also announced measures that would limit those risks as much as possible. And it's very hard to ever get down to, to an absolute 
dealing with without being completely draconian. So from a public health perspective, yes, uh, I agree with the decision to open up with, with the measures that we talked about, the parks and golf courses. So with that in mind, how can we do this safely so that people don't become infected in these areas to where the Governor Murphy has to reverse this order? Well, that comes around to a combination of things and and a few things. First off, nobody knows absolutely for sure what's going to happen with the virus over the next short period of time. We certainly expect that it's going to be around. We do not know whether it may diminish in the warm weather and come back in the winter or exactly how it will act, but we do know that until there's a good vaccine and or good treatments for this, this is going to be something that we're going to have to deal with. We can't close down society forever. You can't make it riskless in that sort of way. In order to be able to reopen and do it as safely as you can, you have to do some of the things that we were just talking about. You have to make sure that if people get sick, that hospitals can take care of them. You have to make sure that there is testing around so that you're concerned that somebody might have it, that you're tested to see if they do have it, and that public health can come in and talk to them and interview them and find out their contact maintenance so that they can be separated out. It will be a gradual process, both to get all that capability in place and also as far as opening goes. And it certainly is possible, meaning nobody knows for sure, but it's going to be a little bit of a, well, we'll do what we think is right, and if whatever reason things begin to get much worse, then we'll have to backtrack and slow things down again. So the amount of cases in the state um, are, are unevenly split across it, uh, along with different peaks for each region. Would it be possible to reopen parts of the state that are ready and leave more affected areas closed? It's possible, but as the governor has said, and he's correct, the problem with that is, let's say, I, Atlantic City is not totally affected, so I'm going to open up the beaches there. Well, what's likely going to happen? Everybody from North doesn't have a beach open. We'll travel down to Atlantic City to go to the open beach, and then they're worried about getting the infection lifted. So you have to be careful when you do that sort of thing. Uh, that not essentially creating an attraction for people to come to that area who would be bringing the virus with them. So many states that border New Jersey is kind of going into your concern have less cases, such as Connecticut and Pennsylvania has less, um, and could reopen quicker than us. Is that a worry? Is there something that should worry New Jerseyans that the fact that they could, that some could possibly go across the border to Pennsylvania to go to a place that's open there or that Pennsylvanians might come over here. Is there is that a concern that we should be worried about if um, a state decides to reopen? Well, you're absolutely right because New Jersey is not an island. You mean, what people around us do can definitely affect what happens here. And it's for that reason that the governor of New Jersey has entered into this regional compact. And this regional group of governors that essentially said, oh, we're going to talk, we're going to coordinate as far as openings and that sort of stuff goes. Does that mean everybody has to do something at exactly the same time? Do you have to open the restaurants at exactly the same time? No, but it means you're coordinating it across regions. And yes, the parts of Pennsylvania have very few cases, and they want to open up their parks as we are doing. Um, that can make perfect sense if all of a sudden 
uh, you know, part of Pennsylvania that was much more impacted, but we're going to open up everything to them that would concern us more, but that's why the traditional compact exists is for that what's going to happen. So I just want to wrap things up here by asking you about the peak. Now, our peak was said to be as a state more like Easter Sunday. However, that keeps somewhat getting pushed, pushed back. Is is there a point where the modeling, or are we at this point now, where we're either in the peak and we're plateauing, or we're kind of starting to flatten the curve and we're going down the other direction? A simple question for which the answer is a little bit more complex. There is no one single data point that we look at. The number of new cases, for example, that you mentioned, yes, certainly we look at that. We also know that the number of new cases are determined on the amount of testing they do. Meaning if they test more, we'll we'll find more cases, even if the total number of cases in the population has increased. So we look at a lot of different data points to try to make that determination of where we are on this curve. And basically, all of them are pointing in the same general direction. Is that yes, I believe that we've begun to go down the, the, the backside. I do believe that the peak has occurred, that the curve was flattened, and that we're, we are getting to go down. We're still nowhere near back to normal, but yes, we've certainly seen significant improvements from where the state was a few weeks ago. Dr. Edward Lipschitz, the New Jersey Health Department Disease Service Medical Director, thank you so much for taking the time with, to talk with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Coming up next, WRSU News reporter Chris Sakonis is sharing his interview that he did with the university president of the Rutgers AAUP AFT, Todd Wilson. So don't go anywhere. Nightbeat will be right back, right here on WRSU FM, New Brunswick. Hey. Celebration time. Come on, WRSU. Hi, this is Dave Joshi from Glimpses of India, one of the community programs here on WRSU. The first radio station in New Jersey area to value diversity and bring out the programs uh, which cater to the listeners from all over the world who are coming in to the United States. Kudos go to the staff and all the volunteers of WRSU that make this such a versatile, community-minded radio program radio station. Congratulations and cheers to WRSU for its anniversary. Hi, this is Quentin from the New Day Show every Sunday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. I love you, WRSU. You rock. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy 72nd birthday, WRSU. Woo! You're the best. Hey, give me a beat. If you're looking for music that's, well, just off the beaten path, you should tune into the offbeat. It's alternative, electric. And just playing out their songs, unfit for most ears. But I'll make an exception for you. Slow my descent into madness and tune into the offbeat. Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Only on WRSU FM New Brunswick. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Coronavirus is affecting the staff here. 
year at Rutgers after budget cuts were made recently by the university. WRSU news reporter Chris Sakonis talked with the president of the Rutgers WAUPAFT, Todd Wolfson, about how teachers are being affected by the pandemic and how their jobs may be affected in the future. Here is a listen to that now. What does the Rutgers community need to know about the budget cuts that the university announced? We need much more financial transparency from the administration. Um, the administration says that they're losing $200 million in the la- in the last in this fiscal year, and they have expectations for the next fiscal year of something of similar size. But we cannot confirm that without transparency around finances of the university. So where losing money and how and how much and we clear. And then we also need to know how that's offset by other things like the stimulus that the, the CARES Act money that they received, um, the hiring freeze that they instituted, the, the uh, pullback on operations that's happened. So I think um, for us in terms of what we need to know to start there, I think we need much more financial transparency from the administration about the current situation. A big chunk of these cuts were on part-time lecturers, and many of them are saying now that they're unsure if they're going to have a job in the fall. Why do you think the university is cutting part-time lecturers so much as opposed to maybe cutting back in other areas? You know, Chris, I, I honestly have no idea. There is no rational argument that they have made to me nor anyone else about why they've made this drastic cut in PTL employment. And, and make no mistake, it's a 20% layoff. Of, of members. They, and, and, and to me, and to all of our union, and I believe the PTL union as well, the, the adjuncts, we see this as a move that is maximal pain, maximal pain for minimal gain. In laying off 20% of the adjunct uh, teachers who have been faithfully teaching in the most professional way are undergrads and grads for years upon years and have seen and, and teach near on 30 percent of the undergrads at this university and cost a mere one percent of the budget i want that to be clear they teach 30 percent of the students and cost one percent of the budget laying off 20 percent of them in the fall saves the university a mere five million dollars it also takes some of the most precarious workers who have been committed to this university and puts them in a financial tailspin where they don't know if they're going to be able to pay their rent bill in the fall. And again, the $5 million university saves is nothing up against the $200 million hole they're in. There are other ways that we could focus on plugging that hole. And if they had prioritized those other ways, they would have partners. So I I don't understand it. I think it was a rash decision. I also understand that deans and chancellors and department chairs across the university think it's a terrible decision. And we we don't think it's a clear thoughtful response to this crisis. Instead, it's a rash um, and thoughtless response to the crisis. And you talked about filling the loss of funding in a better way. So what is that better way from your point of view? I I think there's three things that they should start with, right? The first is that the university has about, well, at least according to like in February, they had about 500 and $83 $83 million in unrestricted reserves. Now, that does not take into account the other approximately $1.3 billion they have in restricted reserves. 
They have one point, they have almost 600 million in unrestricted reserves that they could legally use to solve this crisis. That's three times the fiscal shortfall that they're facing for the end of this year. Now, we're not saying that they should spend down the entirety of their unrestricted reserves, but they certainly could purpose a large chunk, say 50% of it, towards the fiscal crisis. And in either case, we can see how the 600 million in unrestricted reserves dwarfs the $5 million in savings they're going to make in put, laying off 20% of their adjunct staff who are now in a financial tailspin. So that's number one. Number two, they could dramatically cut back on their athletics program for the next year. Um, and number three, they could you know, put a cap on salaries. So in, Barchi, in President Barchi's um, email that came in last Friday, which I think you saw, they are noting that they're going to take a pay cut. The top earners are going to take a 10% pay cut over four months. And the second ring of, of almost top earners are going to take a 5% pay cut over four months. I want to put that up against Harvard's decision, which was to cut top earners by 25% for the entirety of the year. It's not leadership. They are not leading the way they need to. Now, it's a first step. We're glad they did it. It's better that they take that pay cut than no pay cut. But if they took a serious pay cut and we could cap salaries at, say, $250,000, I think we could save the university a ton of money and we don't have to ride out this um, ride out this pandemic on the backs of the most vulnerable, which is what they're proposing thus far. WRSUFM, New Brunswick. What kinds of challenges are your members facing in the midst of all this? I mean, they're they're scared. They're nervous. They they um, are. First off, I should start with my members, whether they're grad workers, postdoc, faculty, or the adjuncts, are here. They've worked really hard to make um, this pivot to an online semester possible, and to make it meaningful for students. Um, and it's been a lot of extra work, but people have been happy to do it. To make sure that the university could continue running. This is the kind of work we all stepped into this and said, yes, we will make this work, particularly for our students. And we are doing that. Everyone faces is that, you know, the administration that we're dealing with in the past has not put its students or its workers first and has put other interests first. And so people are concerned. They're concerned about how the administration is going to move in the days and weeks and months to come during a global pandemic. Um, and they're not sure, certainly adjuncts or PTLs aren't sure if they have a job. Um, and so we need an administration that prioritizes the people that make the university work and the students that come to learn at the university. We need them to prioritize the core mission of the university, which is research and teaching. Um, and we need them to have a laser focus on valorizing and building up that mission of the university. I know the union has drafted a proposal to distribute the money the school received from the CARES Act. What does your proposal call for Rutgers to do with that money? So the proposal we put forward thus far, although we're working on a people's budget for the university, which would encompass everything, but the proposal we put forward thus far is specifically for how the university should distribute the money for students. Um, so that half of the of the money they got from CARES Act. And so our concern was that the federal government has not given 
enough stipulations. They haven't offered enough guidance about how the money should be distributed, except that they have said that the money was meant to go directly to students to deal with all sorts of uh, financial burdens, like paying for their groceries when they don't have a job or paying the rent. So it's meant to deal with this crisis and to support, support students in this crisis. And so our grad students came together as a committee of something like 20 students. They worked together to think about what would be a way to thoughtfully distribute those funds. And they, we put forward this proposal, it's called the CARES Act Commission, um, which I'd be happy to share with you, which talks about and outlines a way that students, both undergrad and grads, can receive funding based on the urgency of their need. Um, and, and what's important about this is students developed it based on their own understanding of their own financial situation. Our concern is that these decisions should be made and the thoughts around how these decisions happen should be guided by people who are in need and not people who don't have need and don't understand that need. And so the reason we put this fo proposal forward to the administration is because we think the voices of students should be centered in how we deal with that $27 million. Thus far, they said that they will not entertain that proposal, so we are gonna to continue to put pressure on them. I will also say that the American Association of University Professors took that proposal and said it's a model for the entire country and are they're putting it out to all the AAUP uh, universities in the country. What can members of the Rutgers community, be them students, faculties, whomever, what can they do to get involved with your union's efforts? I think the first thing is going to be on Friday afternoon, they can get, in, they can join us. We're having a, an event called Open the Books on Friday, May 1st at 5 p.m. And we're doing that so people who have children in school or, or who are homeschooling um, or distance learning can join us. And so at five for one hour, we're going to have an event where we have uh, an accountant look carefully and explain the financial situation of Rutgers. And then we're going to respond and talk about how we think they should prioritize um, the uh, people and students in, during the pandemic. So that's on Friday at 5 p.m. And if you visit the Rutgers AUPAFT website, you can find more details on that. And then, you know, if they want to get involved, please reach out to the union and we'll find ways to get everyone involved, whether you're faculty, whether you're a student, whether you're a community member in New Brunswick, Camden, Newark or any any parts of the extension throughout the, the uh, great state. So we want to work with everyone. But what we really, really want is Rutgers, a Rutgers that centers people, the students who come here to learn, the workers who make the university run. That's how we think they should approach this crisis. Our thanks to WRSU news reporter Chris Sakonis for getting that story for us. And now for the tragic news that the WRSU family has lost one of our own alumni to COVID-19. Our broadcast administrator, Mike Pavlichko, put together a touching tribute to his legacy here at WRSU. Here it is. As we were sending out emails to alumni asking for greetings this weekend for WRSU's 72nd birthday this past Sunday... We got the sad news from Mitchell Heimowitz, class of 1978, who was the GM in 1975-76. He told us of the passing of Tim Corzin, class of 76, a result of the COVID-19 pandemic that has swept across the globe. 
Tim was the news director at WRSU from 1974 to 1976 and was part of the core group that helped WRSU transition from Carrier Current AM, which it had been since its inception in 1948. WRSU hit the airwaves at 88.7 FM in 1974. After WRSU, Tim was a founding member and law partner in Shake and Corson of Lambertville. He was active in Hunterdon County in local Democratic politics. He loved biking, sang in his church choir, and of course, as you would expect from anyone in college radio, he had a big record collection, 45s, even 78s. And he had a sense of humor. He was a founding member of the Punsters. They were a musical group. They wrote funny songs. They performed often on national public radio. They had a hit you can still find on YouTube called Big Hit Record. But why go to YouTube? Tim performed vocals on that track, and you can hear it right now. friend coming around the bend it's the hold it back and just build the suspense a little three notes higher and build the suspense a little three notes higher and build the suspense a little Tim Corzin, along with the Punsters, a member of WRSU, Rutgers alum, class of 1976. Thank you to Mike Pavlichko for putting that together for us. And we're getting close to the end here, but I want to give out some thank yous, obviously, since, as you all know, the coronavirus, we, as a result of it, we can't be in the studio um, but there's been one man who was able to make this all happen, so I want to thank him, Mike Pavlichko, for running the board tonight, as well as allowing us to have all the equipment to make this happen, as well as arranging the interview with Carla Marie. Uh, thank you so much, 
don't know where I'd be without you tonight, so I appreciate it. Also, a special thanks to incoming news director Caleb Kuberite. Uh He was obviously on earlier, and thank you for all his help for putting the show together. And, of course, thank you, because without you, we wouldn't be here. So and we will always be informing you on the latest going on. But if you do miss an episode of Nightbeat, and I want you to listen closely to this one, you're going to want to go to our website, because there... All you have to do is look for Nightbeat, and you will find all of our coronavirus episodes there. So you can get the latest information on what health treatments are being considered, what's testing like, what innovations has Rutgers come up with. We will be able to provide all of those there for you. So I highly recommend you take a look and listen to a couple. That'll about do it for me tonight for Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Coming up, it's more music programming here on WRSU-FM, New Brunswick.